If you would please turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 55 for our scripture reading. Isaiah 55 verses 1 to 11 is our scripture reading this morning. And then our sermon passage is 2 Samuel chapter 23 verses 1 to 7. 2 Samuel 23, 1-7. That's our sermon passage, but before we get there, our scripture reading is Isaiah 55, 1-11. Brothers and sisters, as this passage will remind us, this is the word of the Lord. God's word is worthy of our full attention. When God speaks, we are to listen We not simply ought to listen, but we must. And so I implore you to give your full attention to God's word as it is now read. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk and money without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live and I will make with you an everlasting covenant. My steadfast, sure love for David. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you, did not know, you do not know. A nation that did not know you shall run to you. Because of the Lord your God and of the Holy One of Israel, for He has glorified you. Seek the Lord while He may be found. Call upon Him while He is near. Let the wicked forsake His way and the unrighteous man His thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that He may have compassion on Him and to our God, for He will abundantly pardon For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose." And shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. And now turning to our sermon passage, 2 Samuel 23, 1-7. Now these are the last words of David. The oracle of David, the son of Jesse, the oracle of the man who was raised on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob, the sweet psalmist of Israel. The spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, when one rules justly over men, ruling in fear, in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. For does not my house stand so with God? For he has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure. For will he not cause to prosper all my help and my desire? But worthless men are are all like thorns that are thrown away, for they cannot be taken with the hand. But the man who touches them arms himself with iron and the shaft of a spear. 
and they are utterly consumed with fire. This ends the reading of God's most holy word. Let us pray. Our gracious God, we are thankful that your word, as it goes out, it does not return empty, it doesn't return void. We are thankful that it is like those showers in the springtime that rain down and water the earth, nourish the earth. And that from those rains spring forth flowers and plants, grass and fruit. We are thankful, Lord, for the work that your word does in our lives, for the ways in which it transforms us. We are thankful, O Lord, that it is living and active, that it is sharper than any two-edged sword, that it pierces through bone and marrow all the way to the core of our hearts it pierces. We are thankful for the way in which it exposes sin, for the way in which it shows to us our unbelief. We pray, Lord, that your word and now the preaching of it, that it would build us up, that it would cause us to grow, that it would make us more like Jesus, that we would have instilled within us the desire to walk with him and to walk like him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. And we have moved with this passage from uncertainty about when the previous two passages were written or the events contained in them when they took place to knowing with great certainty with regards to our passage this morning when David spoke these words. These definitely were toward the end of his life. The preface to David's words, which formally should be regarded as a prophecy, says that these are the last words of David. It's a simple phrase, but what does it mean? Is this the last time that David spoke? Were these words recorded by an author, by someone who was sitting at David's deathbed? Well, probably not. And so to clarify, this doesn't mean that these words are the very last things that David ever spoke. Some of you who know a little bit of the history of, of the OPC, you know that, that one of the last things that, that, that Gresham Machen said was, thank God for the active obedience of Christ. He telegraphed it to uh, one of his friends. It wasn't necessarily the last thing that he said, but it was one of those things that was recorded, that was put down, and, and we think about that if we know the history of the OPC. We ponder what he might have meant, but we also, when we come to realize what he meant, we're grateful for the active obedience of Jesus Christ. And so these aren't the last words that David ever spoke, as if he uttered these words and then he breathed his last and died. Rather, it means that these are the last official words of David as king of Israel. These are, as Dale Davis puts it in his commentary, David, uh, David's last words on record. Or possibly, as one commentator says, that this oracular utterance of David is the last to be included in the books of Samuel. Because David does make a few more pronouncements in 1 Kings before he dies. So we read these quote-unquote last words. We don't have to uh, say that with our fingers crossed behind our backs as if we're saying some sort of white lie. These are the last official words of David, statement as king, at least as contained in the books of Samuel. But the story isn't finished. There's still the rest of chapter 23 to go in chapter 24. But these 
official words are placed here immediately following David's song of deliverance for a reason. These two, the song of deliverance and this oracle, are sandwiched between two sections in which David's men are commended. And so we have at the very center of this epilogue of 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Samuel, the very center of this we have as the meat the song of David and this oracle. And on either side of that we have uh, these commendations of the mighty men of David. And then on either side of that, on the outer edges, perhaps we might call it if it were a sandwich, a the bread, we have Saul's great sin, which David is commanded by the Lord to correct in chapter 21. And then chapter 24, the last chapter of 2 Samuel, we have David's great sin for which he has to make atonement to the Lord. And so this oracle, in conjunction with David's song of deliverance and the two passages about his mighty men, it stands in stark contrast with that final chapter of the book in which we have the account of this last sin of David. And so in light of that passage, if you've read to the end of 2 Samuel, you know what happens there, but in light of that passage, this great sin, uh, David uh, does a a census of the people, but he does it for prideful reasons. He does it uh, for wrong reasons. His motives, his intentions are wrong, and he's very strongly corrected by the Lord. It makes us understand that this passage today is a fairly idealized version of David's time as king. But it's an oracle. It's a prophecy. And the fact that it is, it reminds us that ultimately this passage is about a king and a kingdom that for David and for those during his time is yet to come. So I'd ask you to consider this thought as we work our way through the sermon today. The promise God made to David in the form of an everlasting covenant was a promise about the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. The promise that God made to David in the form of an everlasting covenant was a promise about the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. The sermon has three parts today. The first part, the sweet psalmist of Israel. The second, the one who rules justly. And the third, plowshares into spears. Again, the sweet psalmist of Israel. The second part, the one who rules justly. And the third, plowshares into spears. Let's look at the the first part of our sermon this morning, the sweet psalmist of Israel. Verse 1, as we've already seen, says that these are the last words of David. And then the author goes on to describe what follows as an oracle of David. The son of Jesse, the man who was raised on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob, the sweet psalmist of Israel. Now this could serve as a job description for David's, on David's LinkedIn page. It's concise, it's precise, and it lets you know what the author thinks about David, who he is. And yet, and yet... The final chapter of 2 Samuel looms. It's like a dark shadow on the horizon if you are aware of the end of this book. It looms there. It tells us of this last egregious sin committed by David. And so this oracle of David is is an idealized version of the Davidic kingdom that can only be truly realized by another in the Davidic line. Now, by referencing the fact that David was the son of Jesse, the author is reminding his readers, he was reminding us, that David had humble beginnings. David was a shepherd. He was the son of a shepherd. He was not the son of a king. He wasn't the son of Saul. 
He was a nobody. He was the youngest of Jesse's eight sons. Samuel met the other seven sons, and the Lord rejected all of them before David was found and brought before Samuel. And then the Lord said to Samuel, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. But this youngest of Jesse's sons was raised on high. He was elevated to the highest position in all of Israel. He is the one who Samuel anointed. The anointed of the God of Jacob. And you remember that anointed is English for the Hebrew word Messiah. And David set the standard for all of the kings to follow. Not Saul. Saul, in a sense, is erased from the memory of Israel, at least in any positive sense. But the choice of David was surprising. When we were in 1 Samuel chapter 16, the passage in which Samuel seeks out the next king of Israel... The first, son of Jesse came, uh, the first son of Jesse to come to him was Eliab. And Samuel was certain when he saw Eliab that he was the one. Surely the Lord's anointed is before him, he thought. But God told Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Now you remember... That Saul was an impressively tall man. That was part of the reason that he was chosen by Israel to be their king. He stood a head taller than every other man. And apparently Eliab was the same way. Samuel was, was struck by the stature of this man. Even today, there's a lot of talk about, about privilege, about advantage. There is a height privilege. Those people who are very tall, not, not exceedingly tall, not ridiculously tall, but taller than most other people, they do enjoy a bit of an advantage in life over others. When's the last time we had a president who was under six feet tall? When's the last time? Can you remember? I certainly can't. Samuel was seen just like the people of Israel were seeing, which is the same way that we often see. We see tall men as the epitome of a leader, of someone who ought to rule. But the, the least of uh, Jesse's sons was the one the Lord picked. Saul was impressively tall, we saw. David was young and little. And Samuel, by, of all people, he was using the same standard as the men of Israel to evaluate who should be the next king. But the Lord used a different standard. God isn't concerned with out, outward appearances. He's not impressed by a six-foot-five-tall man. Sorry if any of you are that height. God knows how good people are at deceiving others with their looks, with their appearance. God looks at the heart. And David, for all of his faults and his many sins, was a man after God's own heart. So the Lord had Samuel anoint David to be the next king, of Israel. And finally, in verse 1, we read that David is described as the sweet psalmist of Israel. This phrase could also be translated Israel's beloved singer, or more simply, Israel's singer of songs, as the NIV translates it. However, it is translated, it points to the fact that David was the singing king. He wrote more of the 150 psalms than any other single person. He wrote psalms expressing great joy and psalms expressing deep lament. The psalms are the, the part of the Bible that we so often go to. Often when we're in distress, often when we're, express, we're feeling sorrow because the psalms give us the words to express that sorrow, to articulate it. Would that we would do the same when we're experiencing great joy. 
the Psalms are helpful to us. And it's through David's Psalms that we see his heart. It's through the Psalms of David that we see what God saw, at least a part of it at least. The Psalms of David are a true treasure. It's no wonder that Charles Spurgeon entitled his commentary on the Psalms, The Treasury of David. If it weren't for his Psalms, it's very likely that you and I would think quite differently about David. Imagine there being no Psalm 51 when you read about David's sin against Bathsheba, for instance. Imagine. Think a little bit about how you would feel about David if you did not know the deep sorrow and grief that he felt, that he experienced, that he knew, and that he expressed in Psalm 51. David's psalms, his prayers, give deep insight into who he truly was, just as our prayers do. Our prayers, though far less beautiful and eloquent than David's, especially our private prayers, they show who we are in our hearts of hearts, heart of hearts. Our private prayers demonstrate what we truly care about. And this is at least partly why it's so important to, as Jesus told his disciples, go to your prayer closet, pray in private, because it is there that you truly lay your soul bare before the Lord. It's there that you can pray without hindrance or fear that someone will look at you askance, like something's wrong with you. Praying that kind of thing, how on earth could you possibly do such a thing and you've just confessed it in front of all of us as if nothing were wrong with them? In your private prayers, you can confess your sins without embarrassment and expose your anxieties without fear of scorn. In your prayers, you come to, you come to your loving Father, you sit on His lap as it were, you pour out your heart to Him. And this is what David did. And in God's perfect providence, we have so many of his prayers written down to our great benefit for our great good. That brings us to the next part of the sermon, the one who rules justly. In the next section of the passage, we get into the oracle in a more proper sense and into David's direct words. We read in verse 2, the spirit of Yahweh speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. Here David articulates the direct divine inspiration that he receives as the oracle of the Lord. Now, David isn't speaking generally here about how God used people through whom to speak, and yet it does offer insight into the process about, of, about how God inspired those men who wrote the Bible to set it down. He offers insight into the process. As an oracle of God, David speaks God's word when functioning in that capacity as an oracle. And so in the capacity as oracle, the word he speaks is authoritative. And we have to keep that in mind. Not everything that David said in his life was the word of God. Only that which he spoke in his capacity as an oracle of Yahweh. Now, the notion of the Pope in Rome speaking ex cathedra is a man-made attempt to recreate this idea. And the fact that it is man-made is proven when a subsequent Pope has had to perform a do-over of a previous Pope's ex cathedra pronouncement. We see this in other uh, attempts at the church, false churches. The Mormons, for instance, have a president. And he speaks with authority until the next president comes along and has to undo something that the previous president had done. This isn't the case with biblical oracles because they all come from the same source, God himself. 
What God said, what David says here about the oracles he speaks is true of everything else spoken and written down in Scripture. God's word spoken and written by human beings is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart, as Hebrews 4.12 puts it. God's word, as Isaiah 55.11 says, does not return empty, but shall accomplish that which I purpose, and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. And that is because it is the Holy Spirit who speaks through men like David. The Holy Spirit speaks the word. It is the Spirit's word that is on David's tongue, just as it was on Moses' tongue, just as it was on Paul's tongue. David continues in verses 3 and 4, The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, When one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. Now this is the word of the Lord. In one sense, making reference to David's rule as king. This is the last oracle of David after all. But knowing what we know about David's reign, we know that these words are not fully realized in David's reign. David asks the question in verse 5, For does not my house stand with God? He understands what God said through him in verses 3 and 4 as referring to his time in king. And he isn't wrong. God certainly blessed Israel under his rule. Think for a little bit about the time that Saul was king. What did Saul spend his time apparently doing, almost solely doing? He was pursuing David. Rather than ruling the land, rather than ruling the nation of Israel, he was going after the one he perceived to be his greatest enemy, his greatest threat, even though David posed no threat to Saul. Saul was obsessed with him. He wasn't ruling the kingdom of Israel. David, when he came to be king, would have been a vast improvement over Saul. But he was a far from perfect king. And so at the same time that this oracle refers uh, to David's reign as king, it is also pointing forward to a future king and his reign. There were times when David ruled rashly. He made decisions, judgments that were foolhardy. And David wasn't oblivious to this. He knew sometimes after the fact that he had made serious errors, the consequences of which spilled over onto Solomon and subsequent kings of Israel. And so David, even as he speaks this oracle, he has to know that his words are, not ref- are referring not just to himself and to his reign, but primarily to another king to come. Now, a just ruler over men is a great blessing. One who, fears, one who rules in the fear of God dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. A good ruler, a just ruler, is a blessing. And Romans 13 reminds us that that God has instituted the civil authorities for our good, for our well-being, to keep our society from descending into chaos and anarchy. Now, perhaps like me, you have been surprised by the large number of burned spots alongside the highways in this area. Just on the, the drive from our house to the church building, There must be a half dozen places, at least, where the dry grass has caught fire for one reason or another. On the way home on Friday, I noticed that at least one of those spots, following the rain that we got on Wednesday, 
It had green grass starting to grow back in it. David was like that for Israel following the disastrous reign of Saul. But how much more Jesus' reign? And David himself points to the coming of Jesus in verse 5. For does not my house stand so with God? For he has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure. For he will not cause, will he not cause to prosper all my help and desire? Now David knows because God promised it to him that his house, unlike Saul's, will continue on after he's long dead. His house will be eternal. David understood that he was not going to rule eternally over Israel. But his house would be eternal. Israel's history bears this out, that this promise of an everlasting house of David was not fulfilled in Solomon or any of his subsequent generations. By the time Jesus was born, there was no Davidic king sitting on the throne of Israel. There was no throne at all. Israel was no longer a sovereign nation. It was a part of the Roman Empire. Israel was a client kingdom of Rome. Herod was the governor of what was increasingly becoming a problem state for the Roman emperor. But the covenant that God had made with David was an everlasting covenant. And God had told David back in 2 Samuel 7, Your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Isaiah 55 echoes that language. Long after David was gone. And David took this promise to heart. He knew that the covenant was ordered and secure. He had faith in the promise of God. He had faith in the promised one of God. And so these words that David utters in these verses, they are true of David because they pointed forward to the one who would be born in David's line, his descendant. But his kingdom, as he told those around him, was not of this world. His kingdom, Jesus' kingdom, was a continuation of David's, but it was also an intrusion of a new kingdom into the world. This new kingdom isn't a physical kingdom with a physical throne. It's a spiritual kingdom in which the king, Jesus Christ, is enthroned in the hearts of his people. And the Lord will cause all David's help and all of his desire to prosper because it means salvation for sinners like you and me. Indeed, in fact, the the word translated help in the ESV is the Hebrew word for salvation, to save. David understands that God is going to to bring about his salvation and the salvation of all who belong to the Lord. That brings us to the third part and the final part of the sermon today. Plowshares into spears. In the last section, verses 6 and 7, the tone and tenor of David's oracle changes. He shifts from the righteous rule of the promised king to evil, worthless men. He says that these men are like thorns that are thrown away, for they cannot be taken with the hand. The Davidic king is like rain that makes grass sprout forth from the ground. Grass is sustenance for sheep and cattle, which in turn are sustenance for people. But thorns are no good for anyone. When I was a teenager, my grandfather paid my older brother and and me to go out into the pasture and dig up thistles. They're a little different than thorns, but they're no trifling matter. We couldn't simply mow these things down because each thistle plant had thousands of seeds on it. And when you mowed them with with a large mower, it would just send the seeds flying everywhere. And that would result in even more thistles growing up. 
These plants could not simply be pulled out of the ground because their leaves have sharp needle-like points that go straight through gloves. And so my brother and I, we had to use shovels and hoes and other implements to dig the plants up. We had to put the plants in wheelbarrows and wheel them off. We had to put them on, heap them on piles and eventually, once they were dried out, burn them. It was arduous work. It needed to be done because the cows wouldn't eat the thistles. And eventually these thistles would take over the pasture. They would crowd out the grass. It would leave nothing for the cows to eat. And these worthless men, David says in this oracle, they're like thorns. They're like thistles. They're of no use to humanity. You remember that thorns are the result of the curse pronounced on Adam because of his sin. Thorns make our toil in the earth that much more difficult. Thorns, thorn plants take water and nutrients away from beneficial plants. And so they must be dug up and destroyed. But the implements used in verse 7 to deal with these thorns are implements not of the garden. They're implements of war. Not hoes or shovels or plowshares, but spears. In other words, those who oppose God's kingdom will ultimately be dug up. They'll be placed on a pile. They will be burned. Jesus uses very similar language in Matthew 13, 40 to 42. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus was not a Birkenstock wearing hippie. He talked a lot about hell. He talked about its dangers. He talked about the things that will lead you there. And Jesus is speaking exactly of, of that which David speaks in his oracle in our passage. What David had revealed to, to him, what the Lord had revealed to David in types and shadows, Jesus reveals to us explicitly. In fact, Jesus is the only one who can speak this oracle in full truth. Jesus is the one. He is the Son of Man. He will come on the last day in judgment of those who hate him and refuse to believe in him. These words of this oracle of David, while partly true of David's reign, they are far more true, completely true, of the reign of Jesus Christ. His kingdom has come, and his kingdom is coming. But where does that leave you? Where does that leave you? Do these words about the fires of hell, do they, do they create within you a fear? Let me say this to you. Those of you who have professed your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, remember David. David. Who sinned in heinous and egregious ways. Who even after this oracle, which is contained in this passage of Scripture in, in 2 Samuel 23, after this, we read the account of one more heinous sin. David was a sinner. And yet, David is held up as a model. David is held up in this passage as the one who ruled justly. God regarded David as his faithful son. And he did so because of David's truly faithful son, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And if God can do this for David, who was a murderer and an adulterer and a liar, God can and he will do this for you. Your sins, heinous though they may be, are no more heinous than David's sins. David was a man after God's own heart. And if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are a man, you are a woman after God's own heart. And you too will stand on that day of judgment. You will not fall. You will not be burned. But if you don't believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you refuse to repent of your sins and put your trust, your hope, your faith in Him, then let this be a grave warning to you. Repent and believe. And you have no need to fear the fires of hell, which will burn for eternity, and you in them if you don't repent and believe. If you do believe, then you will enjoy the everlasting presence of the triune God. And you can live your life now without fear of judgment in the future. And that, brothers and sisters, is good news. Let us pray. Our gracious God, we are thankful for our father in the faith, our elder brother, David. We are thankful for his psalms, for those prayers that he recorded that were set down in Scripture. We're thankful, Lord, that we have been given insight into his heart. We're also thankful, dear Lord, that we have had his history recorded. All those things that are good, but also, Lord, those things that he did that were terrible and heinous. More than all this, Lord, we are thankful because you, you were faithful to David. You were faithful to your promise to him. You kept your covenant with him when he so willingly cast it aside. And we know, dear Lord, that you are the same with us as you were with David. We pray, Lord, that you would remind us of your faithfulness to us, especially when we are unfaithful. We pray, O Lord, that you would gently humble us. That you'd help us to resist temptation in ways that David failed to resist. We pray, Lord... That when we do give in to temptation and when we do sin, that we would be quick to repent. That by your Spirit, you would fill our hearts with sorrow and lament over our sins, even as you filled David's heart with sorrow and lament. We pray, dear Lord, that in place of that sorrow and lament, you would fill us with joy and hope and peace. Not because we are so faithful but because Christ Jesus, our Lord, the Son of David, was perfectly faithful in every way. He was faithful to us and faithful for us. And in Him, O Lord, and for Him we give thanks. We pray this in His name. Amen.